Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. in Stone Spring Maidens that do for me what the world of Rama in Tiger's Eye and Panther Soul did for many of us in that it gives us a world we want to lose ourselves in even with its acknowledged flaws that are as entrenched as the ugly truths of our own world are mm. but more so than the books set in Rama Stone Spring Maidens keeps one foot grounded in century ensuring that the goings-on in the reunified states are never too far away in our minds. Was this a product of the narrative being a romance between two worlds, the result of wanting to balance an introduction with this new world with continuing the story of the Arlington family, or an indication of how real-world developments have shifted your focus towards otherworldly fantasy? I can't remember the first time I heard a romance between two worlds. It might just have been when I first read this question in your notes. Mm. But that was not something I consciously was trying to do. I think principally because <laughs> a romance between two worlds suggests that Harry represents century. And she really mm. doesn't. She's the no. best of us. You know what? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> but... I love the idea of a romance between two worlds. I love the idea of, of this being, you know, what we can offer each other. And I think it's developing that way, but it has to go outwards and beyond Penny and Harry. <laughs> I was just thinking there's something sort of similar going on in uh, in Tiger's Eye because that it's, it's the connection between... Frau and Miguel and, and what they can offer each other. But in both Tiger's Eye and Stone Spring Maidens, the person from Century goes, do you know what? That world's shit. I'm staying here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. I wonder why. <laughs> we just found out today that a woman, a celebrity, is now unable to fart into jars and sell them. So she's now making NFTs of them instead. Can I please go to Rama or Autumn or Hell? It's got to be better than this. Right. It's, you know it's like these what? these romances involve somebody going, will you get me away from my horrendous parents, please? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not unlike that. Twilight in that regard, because Bella comes along and she's like, oh, the Pacific Northwest country, God being human sucks. Who are you? Ooh, a sexy vampire. Get me away from all these fucking humans and he's like i'll be only too happy to <laughs> you know what, Bella? vampires still get rained on love as long no. as you're in seattle no, that's not no, no, no. he doesn't do that actually he just goes no i don't think you want it enough <laughs> and then he negs her for four years <laughs> And then Jacob comes along and goes, hey, hey, baby, I'm a dog. Do you want to come along and be a dog, pet my head? No, you don't get to what? be a dog. You get to pet me. And Why uh, did we Bella's like, uh, my answer is no. Okay, let's have a whole nother book. Bella, do you want to pet my head? I told you before, Jacob, the answer is fuck off. Scat. Get out of here. On your rug. On your rug. 
Why do we spend millions on the film adaptations of these books? Just leave it to Alex. Like, it's fine. There you go. Those are the books. He just laughed so much, he catapulted the speaker off the desk. He's currently trying to read it. Give us a moment. I just laughed so much at my own joke. Look, Jacob, I'm a cat person, all right? Yeah, the taste of vampire. No, I still don't think you wanted enough. Wait till after prom. Greg, rein the interviewees in. Sorry, Greg. Sorry to <laughs> we hang our heads in shame. I may have had a little bit of much bourbon. I yeah, apologize. No, um, <laughs> what, I, uh, my, what I wrote was, I love the idea of a romance between two worlds. I needed a contrast, something for Harry to want to escape. One sympathizes. It is... Political upheaval, instability, backstabbing, and hatred that she's getting away from. But also, I needed a place for Penny to feel uncomfortable, making her ultimate decision more meaningful. So when Penny goes to Washington, she's not like, oh, this is splendid. It hurts my eyes. <laughs> Stop raining. And your place is full of racists. It does not make me feel safe. Yeah, you can you can read a lot into my psychological state of mind when you look at the world of century uh, like it, it needs to be saved but it is sometimes not a pleasant place to be the thing you said a moment ago where harry is not representative of century she's the best of us this was something that i touched on during the interview i don't remember which interview now whether it was uh Loretta, theo and sharon or orion felix and maya all of them the best of us. Yes, exactly. Because, <laughs> yeah, our heroes in Stone Spring Maidens aren't necessarily representative of Autumn either. They are standouts, and they are the kinds of people that Harry needed to meet in mm. order to fall in love with that world. If everything was viewed through Calendula, I have to feel that eventually Harry would notice earlier the toxicity dripping off of her behavior. I want to say lots of things right now, but I'm also aware that at some point in the future, you are going to want to talk about this book. Mm. And I'm going to shut my mouth because there is some rich stuff to delve into when you look at the worlds. Yeah. You can't answer that question. We'll <laughs> offer our own answers for what. Yeah, I, by all means, then. you can speculate out loud, and I can go. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> or say I'm saying nothing, or, or just you know, yeah, whatever you like. But I, I don't. This is a scenario where I could talk too much, and I don't uh, want to because I love the fact that you keep finding things, and at the same time, you leave plenty of room for other people to come along and go. And mm, mm. I love that. Oof. You take your death of the author responsibilities very seriously. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. This is why I hand it over to you guys. It's way better to hear insightful people talk about it than to say, this is what it means. And I will have no more discussion. Thank <laughs> yes. you. I mean, when you say it's uh, way better to hear insightful people talk about it, you guys have plenty insight. It's just like we're just other voices in the room, I guess. Also, you're a little bit too close to the material. So even if you know the things that you intended when you started writing something. It's more interesting to see what other people read into it, whether yeah. you intended or not. So mm. absolutely that's why you send it through the window. <laughs> nah. Yes, we got the title in. Bam. <laughs> All right, everybody wrap it up. The story of Arlington 
gave voice to McPherson many years ago. Mm-hmm. And this book takes major steps to set him up as a corrupt tyrant and adversary for the future. And yet, as far as this story itself is concerned, he is a non-presence. Not only are his crimes told to us via exposition, but we see almost no characterization of him in the story itself. From a storytelling standpoint, this might be understandable, since he is not central to Harry's personal arc. This is more world-building. But given both your distaste for the fixation on villains in the last several years and the fact that McPherson could be considered a fictional representation of Trump. I'm compelled to ask, is his absence deliberate, and to what end? I think you're being way hard on McPherson with that. Mm. <laughs> the uh, if, if there was an analogue for Trump, it was um, uh, Fantassel. A combination, sort of, I split Trump uh, between uh, Van Tassel and Tremaine, yes. Uh, so, like, the really frightening parts of his cult leader status all went into Tremaine, and the buffoon... Who was far smarter than Trump. Yeah, who was far smart, clearly far smarter than Trump, but very good at manipulating people. And the buffoon, who just says what he thinks everyone wants him to say, uh, was Van Tassel. Who is far more personable yeah. and less disgusting than Trump. The way I wanted to depict uh, McPherson. McPherson played fantastically by uh, Dan, who, like, mm. if you remember that, like, he's only in one scene, Sarah comes along and says, okay, would you consider being vice president? And ironically, he correctly judged that if he played vice president and then Grant died, which he then did at the end of that year, uh, he would be fighting uh, defense rather than offense on uh, uh, trying to take the White House. And here is where I get to put a penny in the jar and show where Alex is definitely referencing the West Wing. Because in politics, if you're not on offense, you're on defense. And uh, he cited a famous quote about the vice presidency position being useless. John and, Adams. Yeah, John Adams. The uh, As in, sit down, John, you f- mother... F-. Yeah. And <laughs> I think the way I'm framing McPherson is... A politician who actually does want to change things doesn't only want to look out. Like, Trump is only interested in himself, or Mm. was only interested in himself, still is. But um, Trump was indicative of the kind of moronic Republican who can't see beyond the end of his own interests, who's just like, yeah, I'll sign this, yeah, I'll sign this, allow corporations to police themselves. I'll go this, this, and this. I'll do this purely out of spite because it'll actually get me popularity with people who thrive on spite. That's not McPherson. McPherson wants to build walls. And that's because he actually genuinely thinks out of fear that that's the right thing to do. And that the the idea of battening down the hatches and saying, saying, let's protect ourselves rather than the rest of America, is is his perspective on America. That's not what Trump would do. He'd be, protect me, I don't care about anybody else. And he'd just, like, he'd scramble away from any danger whenever it happens. So that means that his natural conclusion to this whole Mexico fence thing would be to wrap him up in a sheet of corrugated iron. And I can get behind I'm behind that, that too. Yeah, <laughs> Fearson's <coughs> plan is to save those close by and to maintain this power base just fortify and subsist that way and that was opposing thomas slash white who was like we've all got to 
count and matter at this point. We've all got to unify. We've all got to draw together or we won't actually have the strength to survive. How long do you think you can subsist if all you do is build walls and grow stagnant inside them? Yeah, but from a certain perspective, McPherson's stance is logical in an analog world where you don't have the communications revolution yet. You don't have the ability for people to really talk to each other over long distances. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, sometimes only the people within the sound of your voice mm. actually are the ones that keep you in your spot. Also, one of Thomas's greatest weaknesses is looking at the people and going, they'll find the reserves of energy they need. McPherson looks at them and goes, they're knackered. I can't ask too much of them. I'm not going to be able to retain my power if I do ask too much of them. I can, in fact, if nothing else, appeal to the fact that they are tired and say, let's just set these bricks down for a bit, mm. build this up. And because there's so much of the important influence withheld within Washington, D.C., he managed to actually get the power base that he needed there. The reason I didn't cover it was that I was sick of politics. I wanted to put all of that into Arlington and then never really touch it again. In fact, James Batchelor, when he first read uh, Stone Spring Maidens, was like, it feels like there's loads of stuff going on behind the scenes. And I'm like, yeah, there was. And why didn't you touch it? Because I don't give a shit. I don't <laughs> care how McPherson secured his power base. It involved being in rooms with smoking men in dinner jackets with cognac and brandy saying things that would allow so-and-so to leverage this against that and uh, assert this much power that is the fucking house of cards that's how the sausage gets made i don't care it's not my interest <laughs> it also reflects the perspective of the characters we're already following who don't yeah. get to be in those rooms they have to work it out based on the evidence they see around them. Yeah. Also, it's really, really hard to write intriguing political discourse when you've had five years of Trump just, like, banging pots together, going, I am so smart. I am so smart. Everybody loves me. I am so smart. And it's like, what meetings do you have? Do the thing that makes the thing happen. Bring me a burger. I just it's like you can't fantasize about shit anymore. You can't write fiction that's smarter than fact because the fact is so fucking gormless. I... We've said this for years. If I wrote a character as shallow and stupid as Donald Trump, people would say, well, this guy's underwritten and he could never really get power because we're living in a fucking cartoon from the 80s that they warned us about. And like I said, the holding pattern, actually, I don't think you heard this episode. It's on our Matrix 4 show, which won't be out for a few weeks. The holding pattern for President of America is senile old man. And I don't want to write about that kind of politics. So it's all mm. happening off camera now. Also, so, the more you talked about it, the more I was thinking about. So McPherson is actually like Turtle McConnell, isn't he? Sorry. Um, I mean, the, the, I deliberately wrote McPherson without a direct analog. I think he's mm. more shrewd than most of our Republicans and more decisive than most of our Democrats and actually could save lives. But that his long term plan, well. This answer was redacted due to the fact that very few people have at this point read back in time plus space. <laughs> He's I mean, not going to secure a lasting future. Alex is, of course, absolutely right that McPherson doesn't actually come across as a Trump analog. 
I mostly equated the two based on the fact that he seems to have conspired with Autumn to further his political goals, an act that will very likely get a lot of people unnecessarily killed. And of course, Catherine does say at the end in her big speech that they are entering a time of tyranny. But to be honest, it's interesting that Alex invoked the Matrix movies, because after having listened to the Reloaded show, there is someone that McPherson comes across as. Jason Locke, the oppositional force to Morpheus, who just wants to wall up in Zion to protect what they have, rather than attempt to free everyone in the Matrix. It was so interesting on a personal note, and I say that word because this did interest me, and the results of it did, but going back to Arlington and re-listening to that scene with McPherson after having full knowledge of what happens in Stone Spring Maidens mm. was fascinating to see McPherson and everything he says there because on the original listen through, he was someone who seemed like he would be someone to follow. But now we know, yeah, you, you really should be paying attention to what he's saying here. I said in our episode on that set of chapters that the way that Dan delivered those closing lines where he is asking, if I was in this position, would I have the authority to disband the White Scarves and the NIA? Mm. And when Sarah's backed into a corner and has to concede that, yes, that is technically possible, just the delivery of good to know, <laughs> just uh, this, yeah. just that I'm putting that in my pocket. And when I bring it out again, you won't like it. Very unnerving. I knew at that point that that was exactly what was going to uh, happen. And I, I knew I probably wouldn't even need to get Dan back to actually have to explain it himself because mm. he'd done such a great job there. That was a separate question also. You've mm. actually done a really good job of explaining like, yeah, I just I'm not interested in the politics anymore. So that's all going to be in cut scenes that are not taking place mm. as part of the rising action. But was there a concern about having that all be put to one side because you're worried about uh, getting Dan or, say, Bob back to play Sean Riley <laughs> for future books? Uh, well, actually, I said to uh, Sharon, if we for some reason can't get Bob, Chris can sound an awful lot like his brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah so ho hopefully point. Dan uh, has a, uh, a less famous brother for just in case. Turned out Sean Riley was a twin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm honestly sure that if I said, look, I really need this for one really important scene, I'm sure that they would both come back and play their part. I've been observing some of uh, Dan's videos. I actually think that his Playframe channel, in addition to New Frame Plus being amazing, excellent animation analysis series, that Sonic one, that's a feature like Oh, yeah. The it was way frame. better than the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. <laughs> Yeah, it was a lot more entertaining. But my God, yeah. that that motion capture stuff for the Dreamcast, the adventure games, uh... where they're just sort of waving their hands around. <laughs> but anyway, there's moments when he's playing games where he will sort of supply the voice acting for certain characters, and mm. it's fun looking at that and going, uh, "Oh yeah, no, no, I can see that he's definitely got a talent for this, and I can mm. see why he was able to do such a." effective job with the characters i've heard him with so far yeah like moving forwards i will try to get like when it's when i need to get a character back and it, it, they really are integral to the story uh if i can't get the original voice actor back i haven't 
encountered this yet, but I've, I have to accept that it's going to happen at some point. I'll simply have to recast or work around it somehow with mm. um, a different character fulfilling the same role. But uh, I, I love the integrity of pretty much everyone. Like even being able to get uh, uh, Dan back to play uh, a different Dan, Dan Mayer, uh, to play Chester repeatedly as the, uh, the, mm. the, the, the nerve center of Langley. That's been lovely. So you put a lot of work into building the world of Autumn. Obviously, Autumn is going to be a source of plot and character drama for the arc of our century heroes, given the reveal at the end with Admiral Hero Rubinox having plans for century. Do you have plans for an Autumn-centric novel in the future? Well, Alex revealed as a part of the recent... Um, I think it was part of the text for the Panther Soul Sizzle Reel that yeah. he does have an autocentric story planned for Phase 3 with the working title Crystal Punks. Alex, without spoiling, can you say anything about what you desire to explore using the world and society of the Elaine that you didn't already touch on in Stone Spring Maidens? One of the things that I absolutely loved about uh, Black Panther, and it, it feels like I nabbed the vibranium side of uh, Black Panther because it's like, hey, the meteorite hit the uh, the planet and then it had this incredibly important uh, resource that was full of energy and then this whole culture arose from it. And it feels like I, I nabbed that. That I didn't. That I had an idea for a long, long time ago. What I really did like about uh, Black Panther, and I definitely made note of and decided to incorporate it here, was that as soon as you were introduced to this wonderful new world, which you wanted to uh, go to and, and live in and, and uh, uh, dwell among the people, I made it uncomfortable. And I made sure that you understood as a reader and a listener that there are people here who have a less fantastic time of it. I wanted it to be a critique because every utopia has a question mark because you can't make something wonderful unless somebody suffered mm. or someone is suffering or if it's uh, it's going to be on the backs of people who don't have it as fantastic as the rest. Somebody's got to pay, Lenny. Somebody always pays. The word punks has been abused by that cyberpunk game to mm. mean to have really cool arm blades and to hack whatever gun turrets you want, and to have the best cool flying car with neon on it. No. And to glitch in and out of walls and cars to spawn 50 feet off the ground. Yeah, no. To be a punk is basically to be someone who has nothing who shakes up the system. And the next book will be, hopefully, making some inroads into making life better for people who have it fairly shit in autumn right now and journeying out from Gabriella as well because obviously it's just one city in a vast vast world same as if we only had a story set in Bastarian in Rama that is not indicative of the whole place rather like I was thinking about the closest analogy would have been the city in Transmetropolitan. There mm. are other places. It's just that obviously Gabriella looms large in terms of uh, setting the tone for what the rest of the world is having to deal with. Mm. Fingers crossed that the front cover of Crystal Punks just has Penny with a mohawk on it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I have one 
at least one major new Elaine character that I really want to uh, introduce there. And I, I want to tell the story of a trans female hero, someone who's much more like Harley Quinn, someone fucking crazy, but gleeful. Attar has a spikiness and an edginess to him, but he's soft underneath. He knows when to stop putting his mouth in it. When Donna tells him to stop, he's like, yes, ma'am, because he knows that he's got a tenuous position in this uh, company. I need a character who actually doesn't care and really <laughs> wants to just shake this system up. And to that end, I'm going to need to find a trans actress who is prepared to make this character with me. This is a first reveal, by the way. And if Loretta hears this, Loretta's going to be like, oh, a Harley Quinn character. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> but I can't, I can't give this to a cis woman. It's, it's got to be someone who has a lived experience in this scenario. And, and uh, it's, it's going to be tough to find this character and to, to build them up from just these ideas that I've got right now. But I think the setting of Autumn and the characters that we've already put together does lend itself to uh, a home in this regard. Mm. I'm already mm. very excited for this idea. We got to talk a lot about Atar with Orion and the discussion of the fact that their insight into both the world that they came from but also the choices that they made in order to truly be themselves. Mm. Atar still came from the enormous privilege of his mother that he had the resources yeah. to be able to transition and to just sort of fade from view. Mm. He is able to comment on the society, but he is still benefited from that largesse. So the idea of someone that has not had those kinds of opportunities and therefore does not give any of the shits that's that's very exciting yeah we've got non-binary characters coming up two very significant ones who regard themselves in different ways one of them considers themselves to be a they the other one transitions back and forth from he to she also i've i've gone on and on repeatedly about i've hinted at poly relationships since fucking secret rooms but mm -hmm. i see like for all of this talk i i, it, I seem to uh, be kind of like poly relationships they're great but watch out because they're quite complicated mm. <laughs> and it just it would be nice to actually have a poly relationship that just really fucking works so uh, mm. that's also on the uh, on the horizon for uh, at least one i've got in mind i actually have several in mind and let the shipping commence i mean mm. you've already talked last time about how a strong source of pathos tends to come from potential romantic pairings getting shaken up and having mm -hmm. issues. So that's part of the reason why healthy polycules have not been in the cards so far. Yeah. So, you know, that's it's tough enough to just to get two together, let alone three <laughs> or four. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, actually, yeah. If you've read the uh, the current books, uh, the including the ones that have not yet been adapted, mm -hmm. you'll know that there are quite a few potential mm -hmm. yep. polys right in there. Mm -hmm. With that tease out of the way, <laughs> with Awesome being the only world for now that the reunified states government has an active alliance with, was it your hope to incorporate some of the technology and sensibilities of Autumn into the setting of? America in the same way that 
Kelador has changed the landscape of the British Isles in century. I think America 1884 is going to be a strange fit for the culture of autumn. Mm. Uh, if you if you look at like ha- Harry was fucking fascinated by everything but if you showed the average american from century autumn they would think that it was alienating they would be bewildered and overwhelmed and i suspect that the elaine will be instantly hated by many humans as well because we are prone to racism Mm -hmm. so uh awkward fit and uh teething problems i would suspect will be uh in the future Mm -hmm. i i would say i could be wrong but i know i'm not I'm not going to represent the uh, American people of the uh, 19th century as being, oh, come on in. <laughs> I mean, oh, you're yeah, very, like... very different to us and you like to live in sin. That's cool. I think the, the practical hardships that uh, the late 1800s is riven with, even before you start throwing in the Wendigo, yeah. means that presented with the average resident of autumn they would look so far down their nose at them. Like, you're a woman, you're fragile, you can't even lift that sack of grain, what good are you? Which is ironic, because uh, the women of autumn are going to be like, you frocking barbarians. (laughs) Wash Wash your your hands! hands. (laughs) (laughs) Wash your frigging hands! Frocking hands. I love that, by the way. I, 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 I don't know where it came from, but I was I loved the way that it was frack, in uh, Battlestar Galactica, and was it Rutten in uh, Firefly? In it's Firefly, been a long yeah. while since we watched Firefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, I wanted to to have a swear word that everyone immediately knew what it would be, mm-hmm. um, and that just it, it just it worked in this exact. It has the same feel of the F word. It has the same versatility. I was just about to say, and you used it in multiple scenarios. I loved it when Ganny said, oh, frock me in the face, because I do say that. (laughs) You do. Um, (laughs) Ollie, he didn't say frock. (laughs) (laughs) Ollie, he didn't say frock. I also wanted Penny to say crumbs. That's like her, that's her, (laughs) oh my giddy aunt. She does it twice in the book in just the right places. So that's like her thing. It's a very Enid Blyton, just, you know, Wickmile Crompton, just William, Mm. like antiquated phrase. It is the most adorable way to say, like to sort of, it's not even an expletive. It is like the softest teddy bear way of saying crumbs. Crumbs. Is Winnie the James of Autumn? She might well be. Because Mm. there's a James of Rama if you look hard enough. If you don't know what Alex and Sharon are talking about here, and haven't heard Toby and I referring to it, take a moment to look at the established artwork for the characters in Tiger's Eye, and then at Antonio's artwork for James, and see if you notice any similarities. We're, uh, I'm just thinking about how certain individuals were trying to set Harry up with James. I know, and and oh. Harry was like, "I like James and all," and it's just that there's that not that certain thing. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. No, I was actually thinking about crumbs actually being a very appropriate swear word for Harry, seeing as you really wouldn't want to get food in among the gears and everything. <laughs> you mean Penny? <laughs> Yeah, that was my bad. I misheard rather than misspoke. On the other hand, just because Penny is working with a different technology, I don't think crumbs would be very good there either. 
which is interesting given Ganny's tendency for snacking. Harry says, and Loretta was very proud of finally being able to say this, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's been dying to say that. I think she improved it in one line way back in Arlington, and I was like, I will let you say it once at some point. It <laughs> it's the kind of vocal performance that feels like, okay, we're just counting down the days till we get to say this, right? So I guess uh, she's going to have to, at some point in Crystal Punks, say, Mother Frocker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Harry will be so proud. In light of our earlier question, it also occurs to me that 1884 United States is in a different position than the British Isles were. Because they have some semblance of peace and normality going on. Mm. The Duarte appeared among total chaos and basically took control, which contributed to the integration of those different worlds. The Americans are going to feel like they have some dignity left. And so therefore, the idea of autumn approaching them as being like, yes, let's combine our two worlds and them being completely ruffled about the things that make autumn autumn. Yeah, they uh, they feel like they have a choice mm. and we'll see how much of a choice they have. Well, they, um, it's uh, it's the reason that um, Killmonger, he had a habit of destabilizing. Like he, he would go in and catch nations just as the previous monarch or leader had died or been deposed because at that fragile chaotic state they are more susceptible to being taken back over with a a new way of doing things so the duart presented the british people with okay at the moment you've got bargast and they're eating all of you how about we bring you fire and the british public were like yes yes as long as we can have tea they allowed it to happen because, as it turns out, British people don't like to rock the boat. So when the Duarte took over, they went, okay. Whereas in America, they've been trying to, they've been unstable for many, many years, but they have had various different versions of stability to aim for. And they all have, you know, each citizen in America has their own idea of how they hope the future will turn out, which means that the uh, people of autumn being introduced now is going to be, well, none of this is what I was hoping for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus the fact you've got to think about what autumn can offer that is immediately beneficial to the average person Mm. living in relatively rural America. The reason that the Duarte had this major advantage when they moved into Britain Mm. is, as Alex said, they had this natural ability to be able to dispose of the Bargast. What's the the people of Autumn's response going to be when they come up against the the Wendigo that are running rife in America? It'd be like if aliens came down now and said, all of these environmental problems you're having, we can stick that in reverse and give your planet some stability and actually give you a a few hundred years of breathing space so that you can actually uh, bring this under control yourselves. But to do that, everyone's got to go bald. Everyone on this planet has got to give up their hair. There would be people going, I'm not giving up my hair. But but everyone will die if you don't... My hair! <laughs> Plus the fact, you know, that if aliens did dial us back a few hundred years and go, right, there you go, now you've got some breathing space, you can sort it out. Industrial you Revolution know, too. What will happen is nothing for a few hundred years until we catch back up again with where we were before. And then everybody and then, will panic again. Everyone gets and then a the aid cut. And then the aliens come back and it's like, what did we say? <laughs> <laughs> 
Five minutes. We left you for five minutes. <laughs> no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for, for ten minutes? <laughs> the one thing I said was don't touch the coal. What did I say? <laughs> We've run out of coal. Do you have any coal on that spaceship? Does it look like we have coal on our spaceship? We power this thing with singing. We <laughs> power. <laughs> She's gone. <laughs> Giving us all their hair. Not <laughs> everyone who does. I feel like we'll be able to smell those aliens coming. You know how the cars that run on fry oil, you're like, ah, yeah, I knew there was something. <laughs> the people who were suggesting that you run cars on sewage, like, just, I don't think that's going to help anyone. <laughs> You would think that we would smell you coming through the vacuum of space, and yet, here we are. I don't know what, whether this is going to make for good copy for you guys, but enjoy. I'll use all of my editing abilities here, but honestly, this is some of the most chaotic energy that has ever been in anything that we've done in Through the Wind Door, so thank you for that. I mean, I meant what I said at the time. But only because Laredo's vocals kept breaking up during the earlier interview, which means that we unfortunately lost a portion of her chaotic energy. At some point, I need to have Alex and Sharon on with Matt and Laredo, and see if we manage to keep on topic at all. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm in the corner going. just going, good, good. <laughs> what is it now? <laughs> just the same thing. <laughs> we noticed that you aliens are not bald. You, in fact, appear to be wearing luscious wigs. Um, yes. We could sell you a few. <laughs> so in your ideal universe... I didn't say ideal. You said ideal. The aliens that are going to save us from climate change. In, our, in my new book. <laughs> happened you, before you know what the most posh people were wearing the hair of poor people as wigs <laughs> you know what the most valuable hair of all is henry cavill's mustache yeah i mean that's 25 million dollars right there <laughs> just the removal of it the ad the addition of it 50 million <laughs> the hair must flow <laughs> Do not, my friends, become addicted to hair. You will resent its absence. Don't I know it? Uh, Greg, we've ended up in a hairy situation. <laughs> yeah. This is the reason why I'm not able to bring anyone under control. I'm too busy laughing. Um... <laughs> You're the designated driver, and I'm just sowing chaos. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess someone has to do it, you know? There is a reason why we are simpatico where we are good partners we each bring mm. in someone that the other doesn't have 
Maureen will argue that I'm actually very good at being quick-witted at times. And sometimes I am, though it's usually just a turn of phrase reminding me of movie quotes or song lyrics or bits from comedy sets from Izzard and the like. I actually do better with comedy moments when I have time to plan. But Toby is right. If everyone else is losing it, someone has to keep a steady hand on the wheel. Oof, okay. Well, we're almost done. Let's just try to stay on track for what we have left. We're a hair away. This is what I have to put up with, Alex. I'm, I'm trying to get us back on track, and Toby just won't stop with the puns. The shape and content. The sheer audacity. And I'm giving you my best piercing look right now. Look at my face. This is, this is it. <sighs> the shape and contents of phase one changed with the events of 2015 onwards. Now we see some of those events directly manifested in the story proper of phase two. And you even went back to change some of the details in those old phase one stories with the advent of the audio drama remasters. The removal of Trump from power may allow for some proper reflection on what happened while we were in the middle of it. But I also know that you have two novels forthcoming that will more directly delve into your feelings about UK rather than US politics and society. Given the political commentary made in Stone Spring Maidens, do you think that you will spend that much time directly addressing the Trump era in future novels? Or is it merely going to be the driving antagonistic force for our White Scarf Rebellion? Right. I actually wrote a, uh, a response to this, this very serious question. We need fiction for times of peace and for times of war. I wrote four and a half books during peacetime cartographers secret rooms tiger's eye arlington princess half of princess thieves then i wrote three and five halves in time of war i actually had to work this one out i, I wrote the rest of princess thieves part of steamheart the christmas thieves let them go the rest of steamheart uncivil outlaw part of stone spring maidens and part of panther soul i mean that tells you how i write during wartime not well. I do great stuff, but I have difficulty finishing them because I just, it requires energy and a sense of, I think it's because my books are powered by hope. If I don't have it, I can't finish them because you'll feel how hopeless I feel. But most of those were describing a time of relative stability. And now things are heating up and everything seems to be going wrong. And if I only write for my times, it's only going to be useful in similar eras. So if you think about what the 20th century sci-fi authors wrote about, there were, there were a lot of cautionary tales of don't let our planet get like this. All of the dystopias were like, this is going to be what happens if we do things in this way and we take it to this extreme. And they were writing not necessarily for the now, but for the potential future when this would actually be a nice early warning. Like, let's not let it get like that. Obviously, this is not quite the same thing, but when Alex talks about writing for a certain era, it makes me think about how Jordan Peele's Get Out had a specific ending for the Obama era, and the second that Trump won instead of Hillary, he changed it. Peele knew what was coming, and that audiences needed something to buffer them against the paradigm shift that Trump's rise heralded. 
if I write just in a kind of a let's not elect someone like Trump while he's in the White House, people are going to read and go, hmm, yeah, cool. And if I write, God, this Trump, hey, when we're in a time of relative stability, uh, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember Trump. It's better now. I need to be able to write in a way that people can read different books in my series when the world is in a different states. We have been in constant flux throughout my adult life. There was a period of relative stability during my teens, and I wasn't aware during the 80s. But then after that, just fucking upheaval. And it's not going to change. Like Throughout the rest of our, our, our lives, I suspect, there's never going to be like, and then there was 10 years when it was just kind of cool and just everyone was chilling. So certainty is uncertainty. Yeah, I think uh, it'll get worse, it'll get better, but the fluctuations are going to be the norm, especially post-pandemic. Like This will not be the first pandemic of our lives. There'll be another one that's probably worse, and to that end, thankfully, we'll have had the practice with this one, and the countries who got pretty good at like how to deal with it will be able to snap to it really quickly. I could be wrong, and I really fucking hope I am, but... We definitely need to evolve beyond a couple of things, one of them being war and one of them being a fairly newfound mistrust of people who actually know their shit. And that is something that is husbanded by those who want to manipulate the masses. You tell them this is what Pol Pot did. You get rid of the intellectuals and you say, I'm the only voice you listen to. It's really fucking insidious. So I need to write for both peace and war is what uh, it comes down to. And sometimes the war is just a cultural war. It's something that we all feel like we're in the trenches of and we're all kind of battered and shell-shocked from it as a result. We're all tired as a result and we're all overstimulated and we have all got so much on our plates. And we're all being offered so much. Like, do this, get this. Like hard sell you gotta do this don't miss out on this and the proclivity would be to unplug and i i understand that and i sympathize with that and i, I think that they're there if we can work into our culture a a rest recuperate and then go back out there into the fight cycle then we might be able to kind of back each other up when we need it and then when some of us are flagging others are in the background ready to step forwards into the light this is not stuff i wrote i'm just coming up with the top of my head i'm just sorry i'm just listening to what you were saying and also thinking to myself holy fuck being a young person right now yeah it's so fucking difficult i was reading Something that a teenager was posting on Reddit about their experience with the way things are at his New York City high school right now with mm -hmm. everybody down from the pandemic and everybody running on fumes trying to make normal school happen. And it's just I'm thinking to myself, I feel privileged that I am able to be as isolated from the worst of everything that's going on right now but there are people in the trenches in places like schools and hospitals mm. where it's just so bad and it's been bad for a while they need relief everybody needs relief but it's hardest on 
the children who don't have as many of the resources as the adults do for dealing with this physically, emotionally, societally. And don't remember well a time before all this shit seemed to be happening on a fucking daily basis. A huge Mm. part of what is a big struggle for young people right now, uh, particularly kids who are still of school age, is that they're being told by everybody around them what the normal is that they're not getting to experience, Mm. but they don't necessarily have a good memory of of that normality themselves. We can say to ourselves, this is not normal. They have to just trust us. And they don't trust us because we fucked it all up. It's a destabilizing thing for all of us when you get to a certain point where you grow up and you realize there is actually very little stability and that you are going to have to find and establish your own good enough version of that. Mm. And to have that be confounded by the biggest shakeup that we've had to show that, yeah, like not only is everything unstable and shaky in quote unquote peacetime, it's it's never been shakier than it is now. Everything's not awesome. Everything's not cool. I am so depressed. Everything's not awesome. Whoa, I think I finally get Radiohead. Bro, you should check out Elliot Smith. Jesus, uh, this podcast is becoming manic depressive in terms of <laughs> high energy. Bring back the heavy need yeah. mania just to get us through the depression. Yeah. And to all you do listeners, I do apologize to you as well. It can be a bit of a common occurrence that as a result of talking about New Century... It's hard not to talk about real-world stuff as well, since the two are inextricably linked. But I do hope we're providing good content either way, both the serious and the ridiculous. Okay, so as we approach the end of this up-and-down conversation on a book that is, to me, just... Well, I was going to say all up and all excellence, but that's the point. It is... As successful and as meaningful as it is because it takes you to the places we are when we're really down. And that makes the points where we get ourselves back up again so much more affirming. But as we get to the end of not only this conversation, but the multiple conversations we've had on this mini season of Behind the White Scarves on it, I guess I will ask for you to wrap us up and say... Is there anything that you are especially proud of about Stone Spring Maidens that we haven't already had a chance to touch on? I think I've already said it, but it it, it bears repeating. Finding the cast, the new voices to uh, complement this world and being able to work with them. Orion Richardson, Felix Quist, Akshdeep Singh Vora, Cindy Womack, Shanta Parasuraman, Tanya Milojevic. She was the uh, lady who played the guard captain. She was great. She was um, in Three Scapes with me, which is a uh, uh, an audio drama series that I'm, I believe is still going on. I'm looking forward to going back to it. She was Lady Sharana in that and she was very happy to to take a, a role in this and i've asked her if she'll do some stuff later with panthercell i and... love that outtake with her and i've just been demoted 
awesome. Not only am I humiliated, but I'm demoted. Thank you so much, Hera. You're my best buddy. (laughs) Yes, that was uh, like she just I think that was her first try and she just got it straight away. She just like really like understood the uh, character and uh the, also, everyone who was incredibly prompt and helpful doing cameo roles. I was like, I need a voice to do this. And everyone who stepped forward managed to get their stuff done really, really quickly. I loved the jazzy music we got to include as well. A lot of um, early, early jazz is now entering the public domain. And I was like, yes, this allows me to get a Legend of Korra style Shanghai in the 30s feel to Autumn. But because of all the other sounds, it won't sound just like that. So mm. we got, you know, actual, like, fantastic early jazz acts and and just sort of, it was always to do with Calendula. I wanted it to be, like, we might find Calendula loathsome, but because the jazz is always there, maybe there's something else, question mark. I can't assure you that I will take her anywhere, but I, I, I wanted people to leave thinking, well, fuck Calendula, but still, ah, I, I want her to be a better person. She was thinking about that for a very long time. Whether it's a good great line. Mm. It's yeah. Good great line from a writer. <laughs> it was a good last line to Ooh. refer to her character. Sorry. I think Ooh, he read card good. <laughs> I don't words good in the words of uh, Maureen. <laughs> oh, um, tabletop audio have been absolutely invaluable. This sounds like a fucking Oscars thank you speech. Tabletop audio really formed the soul and the sound of Autumn. They uh, they they came through with stuff which just just felt surprisingly emotional. You know, effectively, all that the, what they're doing is giving flavour to D and D games, but they just. They're an invaluable resource, and I'm very happy to support them. The delicious food descriptions. I was like, I wanted to like make food. Like, you know how um, Jeremy was thrilled to get hold of a lemon so that he could make um, uh, right. Madelines. Madelines, uh, in, yes. In uh, the safe house in Memphis. I was like, that really doesn't say fantastic things about the diet of uh, uh, American people. So when Harry came from there and she starts eating uh, food from autumn, I was like, I wanted this to feel like you immediately wanted to sit down and started eating. It was a reference to tiny food, uh, which is obviously from She-Ra and <gasps> mm-hmm. uh, Entraptor, who is, yeah. uh, you know, uh, reminded me of Harry very much. Adora! Glimmer! Are you here to watch the social experiment too? But I've also always really loved, like, Willow was always really into, you know, the little trolley burgers that are like little tiny hamburgers that are candy and little tiny pizzas uh, that are candy yeah. and little tiny hot dogs. I've always loved, like, little tiny uh, amuse-bouche type things. But being able to eat those as and that be a meal and everything be delicious mm. and colorful and interesting, I'd love that. One of the best things I've ever eaten is a mini hamburger. I like mm. a, not a, like a slider. Like, yeah, like just like a little, you have it in a bite and it's just like, oh my God, I'm actually getting the whole thing. This is it. This is the future. Was there a party in your mouth? No. <laughs> and no one else was invited. Go away. This is mine. <laughs> it's just me and this hamburger. <laughs> is it no longer a hamburger if you can't, like, you don't need your whole ham to, to hold it? 
Well, uh, see, I've always been like confused on this point. Is it hamburger? Like a burger for your hamburger? They come but, from Hamburg, same as Frankfurters come from Frankfurt. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The is Germans not... and Bavarians have got it down when it comes to food. You want a pretzel? Bavaria. Is it meat or bread? We can do it. Also, hamburgers is something that would be served at Barth's Burgers on the sketch comedy show You Can't Do That on Television. And that is one of the deepest cuts I will ever do. So, yeah, other things I really, really loved and was was proud of about uh, uh, this book. Uh, making Autumn a place we'd want to go, even though it has its problems, it felt like a big step up from uh, Century. Possibly less likely to kill you than Rama. Rama, it felt like as soon as Miguel stepped into that jungle, everything was like, ooh, human, never eaten that, okay. And just, <laughs> like, the trees might eat him. I mean... The jungle does have dangerous plants, but for plants that eat people rather than just poison them, I think you gotta go to Saitash. It's just so dangerous, you need a tiger mama. I am a tiger mom! And uh, <laughs> the handling of disabilities and Soma Oneros, I had um, a friend of ours called Chris who did the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings shows with us, and I ran every time when I talk, talked about a disability in the book past him, just as a sort of a sensitivity check, just like, okay... Does this feel patronizing or does it feel like I'm I'm trying to make people with disabilities feel seen? Uh, and it's always difficult for me because, you know, I'm, I'm a, a white cishet male who now does wear glasses. But like when I was writing Gwendolyn, it was really, really difficult for me to encapsulate the feeling of an overweight American high school girl in this British princess that everyone was obliged to be polite to. It took her meeting ruffians like Mortimer to, for her to actually be teased about her weight and for it to even vaguely step sideways into a lived-in experience for girls who were much heavier. But I still wanted there to be a princess who did not look like a Disney princess with the tiny, tiny waist. With the amount of different kinds of disability in this, I wanted it to come from a position of every step away from your bed where you feel trapped is a step towards freedom, a step towards independence, being able to do more for yourself. I, I wanted to highlight every, like when Harry is finally able to go to the bathroom without anyone else's help, she's like, yes, I can fucking do this now. I, I wanted that to feel authentic. And I probably slipped up a few times, but I hopefully got enough in that people who do live with disabilities would be able to go, okay, so his heart's in it. And like I said, I wanted them to feel like disabled heroes actually got to kick ass in this one. I did watch one dispiriting video after I'd done a lot of the writing for it about how a lot of you know fully able-bodied people tend to fetishize bionic arms. They like to watch videos of kids getting bionic arms and going, wow, now I can finally grip things. And, and they go, wow, that's fantastic. He's off on his journey. And they don't think about that we, because we don't think about it, don't have to think about how heavy it is, how expensive it is, how worrying it is that you might break it, how not everything is built for you, how, you know, that there's going to be a lot more attached to it and anxiety over using it or not being able, like just the, the little things that we take for granted that we can do every single tiny little move. And I kind of sidestepped that with the whole being able to control the actual fine-tuned movements of the limbs and fingers and phalanges and toes and things with your mind, but at least being able to give that 
a toll of energy made it feel more like magic so everything has a price and i think with the scene where where corin gets the new hand you yeah. did get across some of that sense of, mm. of anxiety and and that it, it isn't necessarily going to work wonderfully the first time yeah. it takes practice mm. and that it's not going to to fix everyone and that not everyone's going to be able to get a bionic arm and even if a person does get a bionic arm or a bionic leg or uh, a wheelchair that can go in a certain way there's just so many parts of their life that are much more challenging and difficult like i wanted to make sure that that got in there and i'll continue to with the disabled characters it won't just be like ganny's got a fucking awesome cybernetic arm now and now he's fantastic and now he experiences no more problems there's always something i will say this about ganny and this is obviously coming from another white sit-set man currently wearing glasses so take it for what it's worth. But with Gany, the most interesting and appealing thing about him that draws us to him as a character really doesn't come down to the fact that, oh, he's got the cool robot arm, like in the sort of sci-fi thing. It's because he's Gany. That's mm. that's what draws us to him. I, I put down as one of the next things, making Ganny the friend that everyone wants. I knew that <laughs> as written, people would be like, well, this guy seems just a little too perfect. But then when Felix voiced him, people would believe that there would be someone that downright pleasant in the world. Yes. And you'd be like, can he be my friend, please? Because that's yes. how it felt working with Felix. I was like, you're actually Ganny. Can we be mates? <laughs> that was absolutely the sense I got from talking with him. Right down to the rich blue room that he was speaking in. When oh, we were yeah. Talking. He's got blue um, energy. Um, but, oh, you know, I'm... as it turned out, I found out afterwards that he was friends with Matt, who's voiced many, many characters, including uh, Oberon and King Shala. And many horrible characters like... Uh, he voiced Tremaine, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He voiced Tremaine and uh, the, the uh, uh, un unflattering uh, caricature of uh, Edison. And, of course, everyone's least favourite character, Mayor Racism Buck. Matt's always been fantastic, but hooking me up with Felix and to the point where I didn't even know that was what was happening... Uh, it was one of the uh, best things he could do for this project, even though he only actually voiced a couple of characters in it. It was a little, little bit of Kaufman, and uh, I, I think I mentioned Jeremy once. I was uh, about to say that, you know, now I really want to have Ganny meet Oberon, because I feel like they're just the two friends that everyone is really glad to have there. Yeah. And then you mentioned that they know each other in real life. It's like, oh, well, they already have met. <laughs> they get on famously i feel honestly the big crossover that i've got it's always in the distance i keep putting it off because i keep developing these characters and i'm like when i do this i have to do this really really well and it has to feel like because it might be the only time i actually get to do this on this scale they don't make infinity war every year at marvel and uh, it needs to be better than Infinity War, frankly. Infinity War got problems, and uh, I mm. need to somehow be better than that to do the end game of Infinity Wars, if that makes sense. Sharon's uh, eyes are starting to droop now, so I will finish the yeah. uh, last things that Sorry, I, I liked. Sorry, I don't You don't need to be you mean to be tired. You've been working since how long this morning? I started at mm. half seven. Half mm. seven. It's now 9.30. So that's 14 right. hours. So Okay. 
Soma Oneros I loved as a concept uh, and Harry speaking faster. This is the directions that I gave to uh, uh, Loretta because she was uh, voicing Harry being very halting and tentative. And I was like, no, no, no. Now that you're in autumn, you can speed her up. Try not to be like Annie, but it's like they're speaking her language and she's finally speaking their language. So she's finding herself. And that means that she's not so tentative and she's becoming more sure of herself. If you listen carefully, Harry starts getting a lot more assertive. Mm -hmm. um, making Penny not just a wet blanket, which was a, a challenge because she folds all the time. The internal monologues where she wanted to say something rebellious and didn't, I wanted people to really be party to that. And even like having Theo voice those things so that that's exactly what was going on in her head so that we know she's not just a pushover, but there are things that are making her fold. Remaining sensitive to sensitivities, paying attention to uh, how people respond to running blades when they first get them, because they're, they're great for running, not so great for just standing. Airships, finally getting those into the uh, story. The uh, we've we've had zeppelins before, but I've been wanting to get airships in here since two thousand and one. That's how much Final Fantasy I was playing at the time. The wow. color theory coming together, Tawesha as a concept of this uh, androgynous star child. The uh, idea of of you know being a union of masculine and feminine traits. Um, making the prejudicial treatment of women or men redundant. And the three seasons I really liked as an idea of if it's always autumn, but they share it shares traits of spring, summer and winter. The deep history and the underground city, which I might be exploring at some point. Mm -hmm. How the exposition dumps mm -hmm. sound amazing coming out of Theo and how they all inform on character. So you can listen to them again rather than going, yes, 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 we know this polyamory being in there at all and hopefully being able to explore that again at a later date and the trans casting that wasn't just orion i i, I went out of my way at times to get trans actors in to play cis characters and to play characters where it was undisclosed whether they were cis or trans because a cis role is still a get for somebody who is a trans actor or just a, somebody trans who is providing uh, a voice. It, it's not necessarily someone that they would not want to play because they're actors. Yeah. You know, we aren't all wizards, <laughs> but, but like we don't necessarily all need to only be cast as the people we actually have that shared experience of. One thing I wanted to touch on going way back at this point when you were discussing the article that came up on Discord about how disabled people feel about replacement limbs, mm. one of the parts of that article that came to mind was that they were discussing, like, they had two different versions of a replacement limb, and one of them was far more aesthetically pleasing, helped them blend better, but was far more difficult to use than the one that actually gave them useful functionality but looked far more like a mechanism looked mm. far less pleasing to the eye and everything like that yeah. and even though that article came out after you'd done the bulk of the writing for stone spring maidens something that i actually very much enjoyed was i don't remember who actually did the artwork but you had a piece that was of Harry with her new legs. Mm -hmm. 
and the entire discussion about how she crafted them to be most useful for what she did on a regular basis and gave her maximum functionality, but that the way they look is very different from human legs. And yet, even though those legs were not about helping her blend in, she still wanted them to be the color of her skin, rather than the original ivory of the material. Coloring them made them hers. You somehow managed to touch on that, even though your reading of the article came along later. And it just made it feel like, yes, this is what is important to Harry. She cares more about the functionality rather than blending in because she's never blended in. Yeah, no. Mm. Uh, Was it this picture? I'm just going to paste this into the chat there. Uh, Hold on. Yes. Yes, that one. Uh, That was by Vicky Kuhn. Right, mm. Vicky Kuhn. She has a very distinct art style, yes. Yeah, it's that uh, uh, lovely kind of birthday card look. Okay, so I guess we will now get to the final question, as this was a capper to both of our previous Stone Spring interviews. I'd like to extend the question to you as well, Alex. What would your colour or colours be in the world of autumn? Blue and red. I should have guessed. <laughs> I should have guessed. Sharon? I already gave mine. Yeah, yeah. Blue and green. Yeah, blue and green. That makes sense. I I would concur with that. Mine's green and silver. Nice. Well, in that case, now that we have crossed the final one off the list... Oh, hang on. Greg, what's yours? I actually went into a deep dive on this in one of the previous episodes. I ended up picking blue and green as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up giving this way more thought than I needed to, but, uh, one of the things (laughs) that I realized, (laughs) yes, as is our form, but in in the process of answering the question, I I had forgotten that my eyes are also blue green. No, no, I remember you saying that. I remember Sharon Mm -hmm. saying, oh, at that exact point when we were listening, (laughs) someone else was paying attention as well. As when Maureen visited me for a week, she presented me with several new shirts as belated Christmas and birthday presents. Two were from the Filmjoy website, with some of Mikey Newman's trademark lines, but one was a tie-dye, a swirl of blues and greens, and specifically teal, my very favorite color. Thank you so much. You are extremely welcome. For spending all of this time with us, we don't want to keep you... Two years on, this continues to be amazing. The gift that keeps on giving. Thank you for inviting us into your world and for letting us go on as much as we do about this thing, which means in some ways more to us than you, the creator, because we're just we're we're the one that is taking all of this and making an enormous feast out of it Hmm. every week similarly your show probably means more to me than it does to you Uh, maybe i don't know Uh, it's got to work both ways (laughs) (laughs) it it was the thing that got all of us through 2020 so i mean yeah it's a it's Mm. a wonderful circular life scenario thank you Mm -hmm. for 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 creating this dynamo we're we're going to continue to need it fortunately or unfortunately well greg 
I guess that means that the next time we sit down for a recording session, we will begin our lengthy journey in Steamheart. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll have to see how much space that actually takes up. Everyone has been estimating that at our current output, it's probably going to take us most of 2022 to do so. But you got we'll... anything else to do? In 2022, <laughs> we're all stuck inside still. <laughs> Bollocks. Yeah, but, Ed, you know, there might be more news of the century, more things for us to cover as oh, you yes. keep writing. I hope to so... delay you often. <laughs> 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 There's a gremlin who keeps throwing a wrench in the gears and he just throws books at us. It'll be side roads. It'll be, oh, what's over there? Oh, do we have to drive down there? Yes, we do. <laughs> It'll be fantastic to take that journey with you as well. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, going back to Steamheart, as I recall, I think Let Them Go was the first book that I did not do a full on behind the white scarves. We had one sit down chat about it. And then I think maybe nothing for Steamheart. So mm -hmm. yeah, being able to to hear you guys talk about it will be the first like in-depth chat because if you remember like we did talk about arlington we did talk about tiger's eye we did talk about secret rooms so that's all stuff and we did talk about the princess thieves at length as well so when you guys uh, talk about that then it'll feel like ah i remember what we said and i'm not playing any of that <laughs> i'm not showing it to you you can just you can find it on your own i'm pretty but sure steamheart's that, yeah. new Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. Well, dear listeners, this particular recording will be quite a journey for you to go through as soon as it's released onto the internet. Apologies for the manic screaming and laughing and shouting and being aliens. <laughs> Wait, you're the aliens? <laughs> um, how much for your hair? <laughs> no, wait, the other way around. How much for your hair back? <laughs> all right greg we need to cut the sorry that's that's so not gonna make any to... sense if you cut it and to put that in bloopers <laughs> <laughs> through the blooper door <laughs> you know maybe a whole episode of just the mad shit <laughs> a lot of it would be from this oh i'll see how it turns out in the edit it's fine uh yes uh hi listeners thank you we hope we enjoyed uh, next time through the window, we're out of here. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Yep. Uh, take <laughs> Mutual care. exhaustion, uh, but yeah. Very sad. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, okay, this isn't quite it. We do have some outtakes at the end, including some of the ridiculousness I cut out of this episode. But this is the end of our interview, and the end of another journey we took together. I'm already gearing up for Toby and I to have our discussion on the first four chapters of Steamheart, but there might be a slight delay before it's released. Toby's been having a bit of a time, and my schedule continues to be wonky because of adjustments due to COVID. But I'm already feeling the spark and momentum that has kept me writing outlines, scheduling conversations, and editing them for your perusal for almost two years now. If nothing else... 2022 is going to be a good year for Through the Wind Door. To close us out, I give you the entirety of the musical piece I picked as the intro 
for Season 5. Until next time, this is Scott Holmes with Together We Stand. I will say, just as a quick aside, one ASMR or just sort of background noise that I enjoyed back in the day, ambient TARDIS noises. Just like uh, not that stuff. Not the not appearing and reappearing, but when you're oh, in right. the TARDIS and there's just right. the background hum of it. <laughs> just the mm, all of all of that. Uh, like I think it touches on 
what Talley says in the first Mass Effect, that idea of just hearing the background hum of the engines is mm. comforting. Uh, uh, Wendy, uh, who... Mindy, fucking hell. Cindy. Cindy. Could you please edit out me saying Wendy? Cindy <laughs> Wom. Editing, editing. Editing. Yeah. And so I think, Greg, you'll have to cut this out because this is spoilers for a book, several books down the road. But <laughs> I hold to my theory that at one point in the audio adaptation of Back in Time Plus Space, we're going to hear... Redacted. Alex will not say a word on this. Of course he won't. But uh, that's just a fun little guess and theory I have going. I mean, it may be a guess, but now that you've planted it in Alex's brain... Not saying anything, but <laughs> very clever. <laughs> You'd have to be a very clever person to come up with that. <laughs> well, We're just noticing the patterns, that's all. <laughs> just little hints. Holy shit. <laughs> so Sorry. Uncomfortable. I heard something outside and I was just checking the... Uh, the outside camera, and unfortunately, the most recent thing started playing that showed uh, the guy was plowing my driveway. That's where the su the noise suddenly came from. Got it, got it. Yeah, <laughs> he was backing up. This is a bit removed from the discussion of the hair aliens, where Alex was equating them to the Cyclo from the very bad movie Battlefield Earth. This is a good question, and uh, I'm just going to send you a picture of hairy aliens... Who I, I, I would imagine would be the exact kind that we're liable to uh, end up with. Uh, here we go. There's uh, those guys there. Yeah, they're going to sell us our own hair back after having turned it into magnificent wigs <laughs> for themselves. Oh, God, not them. Oh, <laughs> good Lord. Oh, we were still learning to from, spell uh, Yeah, uh, that's where John Travolta plays a cross between a Klingon and a hairy egg. Bring yeah. back the hairy aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Come back, Cyclones. All is forgiven. Sell me never... my hair, please. <laughs> I never thought I'd do this, but I feel like when I do the edit on this, I'm going to have to include some clips from Battlefield Earth. So, no! uh... <laughs> Why would you do this to everyone? Alex, this is your fault. You know it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> it's a joke. 